One of the um, most important processes to establish uh, in an emergency is triage. And uh, it's a French word uh, that essentially means sorting. uh, And sorting in the sense of prioritising. If you've ever had to wait uh, in a hospital A&E department, uh, you may have felt the frustration of seeing others who've come after you go in before you, but it's about prioritising medical issues. Uh, A gunshot wound to the chest always trumps a severely sprained ankle. But the process of triage is also crucial as we think more philosophically about life. Are our physical needs uh, more or less important than our spiritual needs? And the answer to that question depends entirely upon the facts that you base your existence on. The ultimate authority for answering uh, this question is the scriptures, uh, because they are God's word to us. And when we open the pages of the Bible, we are reminded over and over again that our greatest need in life is not physical health, it's not physical wealth, but spiritual reconciliation to God. We are sinners who are under the just judgment of holy God. And if we die without being reconciled to him, then we will face eternal punishment in hell for our sins. People need to see that forgiveness is the most important, most critical issue in our lives. King David declared in Psalm 32 verse 1, and this should be familiar to you as uh, Nathan preached on this last week. Psalm 32 verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In our world, people are distracted from seeing the greatest blessing. But as we continue in our study today on Mark's Gospel, Jesus brings it right to the forefront of the discussion. He shows the necessity of forgiveness. And he also shows that he is the one whom we need to seek to receive that forgiveness. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 to 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The title of today's message is The Forgiveness of sins. And the first thing that we see in this passage is Jesus preaching to the people. And so point one is the proclamation of forgiveness. And if you're a visitor here today, you'll see the points for today's message outlined on the back of the news sheet. So point one, the proclamation of forgiveness. At the end of Mark chapter one, Jesus had left Capernaum on a preaching tour of the region of Galilee. Uh, But at the beginning of chapter 2, we see that tour end. And we also see Jesus continuing to do what he was doing the entire time he was away, preaching the word. So let me read verses 1 and 2 again. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. It was reported that Jesus had returned home, not because he had publicly announced it, uh, but because his fame was so great that people had been following him throughout his time away and had done everything they could to track him down again. Uh, Before Jesus had left for this tour, his fame had already begun to grow uh, in Capernaum uh, due to the momentous events of one particular day, uh, which we've already seen uh, in Mark chapter 1. Let's just uh, reflect on that. On the morning of that day, he had preached the gospel so clearly in the synagogue that it it seared the heart of a demon who had possessed a man uh, in the in the synagogue and this this demon cut to the heart revealed himself out of fear and then Jesus cast him out that afternoon Jesus went back to Simon's uh, house uh, where he then miraculously healed Simon's mother-in-law that evening uh, once the Sabbath had ended the people they had heard the news coming out of what was happening in Capernaum that day and they they streamed to the house bringing the sick bringing the spiritually possessed and the whole town having turned out and Jesus healed late into the evening. Well, the next morning, the crowds were still pouring in and the disciples, excitedly, they were wanting to make a difference. They were wanting to, to make a, an impact and um, they urged Jesus to keep healing. But how did Jesus respond? Mark 1 verse 38, he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And so Jesus left the crowds. Verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. His focus was preaching the message of the gospel, that people needed to repent of their sins believe the good news of God's saving rule that had arrived in himself. 
But while Jesus was preaching around the place, he, he came across this leper who approached him and he mercifully healed him. And this event sparked a change in the direction of uh, his ministry. His, his fame grew even more, so much so that he had to go further out into the desolate areas so that he could preach the gospel without, without people being caught up seeking him to perform miraculous signs. It's no different today, is it, when we think about it? People want the gifts that God brings, but they don't want to submit to him and what he has to say in order to receive them. I heard a conversation in the last week where people were gathered discussing the meaning of life and uh, they were asking some deep questions, but they were certainly, uh, they were talking about uh, the, the possibility of God and, you know, what the Bible possibly said, but uh, they were not willing to actually open the Bible and, and hear what the Bible actually had to say. It was their own perceptions of, of what they thought it said. These people, like the crowds seeking Jesus, were only interested in what they could personally gain uh, rather than submitting to Christ for what they truly needed. Well, now at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, uh, perhaps weeks, maybe even months after Jesus had initially set off, he returned home to Capernaum and he returned most probably to Simon Peter's house again. But once he returned, it didn't take long before word got out and people raced to see him. And what did Jesus do? The crowd gathered and he preached the word to them. The phrase, the word, sometimes refers in the Bible uh, to Jesus himself, sometimes refers to the gospel, the message about Jesus or to the scriptures as a whole. As 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is God's word to us. And the gospel is the heart of that word. And the heart of God's word is the message of how sinful humanity can be reconciled to holy God. That forgiveness of sins is enabled by faith in the life, death and resurrection of the one and only Saviour. Now, of course, as believers, we are called to grow in our understanding of the whole word, uh, to go beyond the milk, uh, to solid food, as the writer of Hebrews states. But the beginning point is belief in the gospel of forgiveness. Now, while many of the people gathered before Jesus are there for superficial blessing, Jesus takes the opportunity to preach the gospel as he expounds the scriptures to them, knowing well that God would draw his people to faith, that the sheep would hear the shepherd's voice and follow. Let me ask, how interested are you in hearing the word? How much importance do you place upon that in your own life? What about in the context of corporate worship as we, we gather together each week? Uh, do you come along uh, and endure the sermon simply so that you can participate in other things like singing or, or serving or socialising? Uh, or maybe for the chance of witnessing something truly supernatural 
happen. Something experiential happen. Well, if that's the case, may I remind you of what Jesus said elsewhere. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hearing the word of God is more essential to life than food itself. Now, while Jesus is proclaiming this message of forgiveness, he's interrupted by what can be described as nothing else than an extraordinary sight. But Jesus' response shows the priority of forgiveness. So point two, the priority of forgiveness. While Jesus is preaching, surrounded by this tightly packed in crowd, uh, on the outside is a group of uh, companions trying desperately to get in. Verses 3 to 4 read, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, it's not hard to uh, place yourself in the events of this scene, is it? It's just uh, so vivid in what it describes here. The men, uh, having heard the report that Jesus had returned... They took the opportunity to bring their disabled friend to seek healing from Jesus. Perhaps they were among those who had had come the following day after Jesus had healed Simon's mother-in-law, but were distressed to find that Jesus had already headed off first thing in the morning. Uh, But now comes a second chance. And they scour the house looking for a way to bring in their friend. Although we must say we're not clearly told how they're actually connected to him. They could be friends or they could be family. But either way, their concern for him is seen in their urgency and their effort to get him to Jesus. But it's all to no avail. They can't find a way in. And if they can't get to Jesus, they might miss their chance again. Maybe there wouldn't be any more chances after this. And so in desperation, they quickly devise another approach. Now, many houses in Galilee had a a set of stairs on the outside, which led to a flat roof, which could be used for relaxing or sleeping on. And so carefully, but quickly, they navigate their way up the stairs to the roof and place their companion down and they begin to dig. Roofs were generally made of of sturdy branches or timber uh, covered with slabs of of dried and hardened clay to seal it from the weather. Uh, Luke tells us in his account that they actually had to go through the tiles. Now, while digging probably wouldn't have taken an enormous length of time, it would have been quickly noticed uh, as people underneath begin to hear these, these scratchings and these noises above, begin to have uh, clumps of dried clay drop down and bits of branches falling around them. And they're jolted with shock as suddenly daylight breaks through. Uh, and as this head just pops down and looks around in confirmation that they're in the right spot. And then a few seconds later, a whole person is being lowered down amidst the gasps of crowd and uh, the grunts of straining coming from above as they lower uh, their friend down. It is quite a commotion. 
especially in the final moments as the people catch on to what's actually happening and they have to force themselves back. Remember, they're tightly packed in and they all have to kind of press backwards to make room for this this body that's descending and is not going to stop. They have to make room. But in the midst of this commotion, it is Jesus' simple response that will lead to even greater disturbance. This event of seeing a body descend through the ceiling, this is not the greatest disturbance that happens this morning. Verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Before we look at what Jesus said, let's take a look at what Jesus saw. How can it be said that Jesus saw their faith? Well, because it was not merely an intellectual exercise for them. Their faith was evidenced by their actions. Saving faith, as we've explained many times before, involves knowledge, it involves our emotions, and it involves the will. And the commitment of these men to come to Jesus is what is commended. And while it could be thought that the faith that Jesus saw belonged to the four men holding the the stretcher, the bed, it most surely includes the paralytic as well. Remember, he's he's paralysed, but he's not mute. So he would have been in agreement with his companions to go see Jesus, uh, to be carried up the stairs, to wait patiently as the others dug through the roof, to be lowered down before the watching crowd. The paralytic expressed faith in Jesus by his willingness to go along with this crazy venture, risking humiliation, risking mocking, risking possible retaliation later on for property damage. But when he lay at Jesus' feet, the words he heard were no doubt as unexpected for him as his descent through the roof was as unexpected for the watching crowd. To be addressed firstly as son would have been incredibly special. Unlike the the leper that Jesus encountered at the end of Mark 1, this paralytic uh, did not experience a forced physical ostracism. He wasn't uh, told to to stay out of the town and away from people. He wasn't considered uh, unclean and contagious like the leper was. However, while he could live in the town and while he could interact with his family and friends and society in general, the fact that he was experiencing physical suffering would have led to some mental isolation as as people in that uh, time and that culture associated uh, physical suffering with personal sin. He would have known how people thought of him. So to hear Jesus call him son spoke of acceptance. That Jesus would use this term points to the fact also that he knew the man's heart and he knew that his faith was genuine, not merely superficial, which is a a clear sign as well of Jesus' deity. And this will come up more in a moment. But moreover, in declaring to the paralytic that his sins were forgiven, Jesus got to the heart of the matter. While the man's physical condition could not be linked directly to any personal sin that he had committed, the the physical suffering was indeed part and parcel of living in a fallen, sinful world. 
The crucial problem the, the man faced was not his inability to walk, but his sinful nature that ostracised him from holy God. For Jesus to physically heal the man without dealing with his spiritual need would be like giving an old house a new coat of paint while failing to exterminate the white ants that infested the inner frame and the foundation. Now it's true that on many, many other occasions Jesus did heal those who came to him uh, who did not uh, express a saving faith. But all those instances were examples of Jesus' great compassion and the arrival of God's kingdom power. But Jesus uses this moment right here to teach the people what is really at stake. Sinners need to recognise that their greatest issue is that they currently sit under the wrath of God. And unless there is reconciliation, they will feel the full brunt of that wrath for eternity in hell. Hell is not the absence of God. It is the presence of God in his righteous judgment. Jesus has come to make that reconciliation possible. Remember the words of Uh, the angel to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. Speaking of Mary, the angel declared, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus could pronounce the forgiveness of sins based upon what he would do at the cross. As the Apostle Paul states in Romans 10.13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done this? Have you called upon the mercy of God, trusting in Christ and Christ alone to forgive your sins? If not, then I implore you this day to do so. Christ has come to save his people and by responding to him, you will find yourself as counted as one of his very own. As the old hymn states, Come to the Saviour, make no delay. Here in his word he's shown us the way. Here in our midst he's standing today, tenderly saying, Come. Well, the priority that Jesus places on forgiveness is not the only issue that causes a stir. More significant is the fact that he claims the right to forgive sinners himself. It is a prerogative that belongs to God alone. And so point three is the prerogative of forgiveness. At this stage in the account, the makeup of the crowd is now disclosed by Mark as including more than simply curious onlookers. Verse six tells us, Now some of the scribes were sitting there. The scribes were the lawyers, the teachers who were trained in the law of God. When Jesus had earlier preached in the Capernaum synagogue, he had been compared to the scribes with the people claiming he taught with authority greater than those claiming to be teachers. But here is the first actual encounter with them. In Luke's parallel account, he explains that present along with the scribes were also Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the largest Jewish religious party in Jesus' day. 
They were stringent followers of the law, but they had by this time added much to the law, such that the true heart and purpose was surpassed by the superficial, the outward adherence being lauded and the inner adherence being being loosened. Now, it led to great hypocrisy, of which Jesus called them on many times. Now, most scribes belonged to the party of the Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were trained as scribes. But here, gathered before Jesus, were representatives of both groups. And according to Luke, it was clear that there had been a decisive effort of the scribes and the Pharisees to come and find out more concerning this new preacher. Luke 5.17 says that they'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea. Jesus had certainly begun to cause a stir in the region, and on this occasion, he did not disappoint at all. His claiming the prerogative of forgiveness set the minds racing in anger. And they question in their hearts, verse 7, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, if Jesus was merely a man, then they would be absolutely correct, for only God can forgive sins. Firstly, we need to understand that all sin is ultimately committed against God. In Psalm 51, King David, lamenting to God about his actions with Bathsheba, declared in verse 4, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, on a horizontal level, David had sinned against countless people. He'd, he'd performed evil against the whole host of people, against Bathsheba, against her husband Uriah, against his own family, against his own people Israel, whom he was uh, the representative leader. Yet David recognises that all sin is truly against holy God. Now, certainly that has a great deal to say when people claim that no one was hurt by these sinful actions, so it's okay. Now, even if humanly speaking that were true, the fact of the matter is that every single sin is an affront to God. And that God is the one who is ultimately offended by sin means that he is the only one in a position to forgive the offence. And added to this, secondly, is the fact that no one can forgive sins because everyone is a sinner and subject to God's just punishment themselves. Psalm 49 verses 7 to 8 declares that truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. This means that no man can ever do enough to escape the punishment of death. Forgetting anyone else, they can't do it for themselves. But later in Psalm, in that same Psalm, verse 15 states, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Our only hope for salvation is God. Now, if Jesus 
is merely a mortal man, then claiming the authority to forgive sins and redeem lives is worthy of the charge of blasphemy. But as Mark has already made clear, Jesus is not merely a man. Yes, he is truly man, but at the same time, he is truly God. Mark opens his gospel with a quote from the Old Testament prophets that makes this point. Paths are to be made ready, made straight in readiness for the arrival of the Lord, of Yahweh. And this arrival is attested by John the Baptist, uh, by the voice from heaven, and by the descent of the Holy Spirit. The Lord God had arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as truly man, Jesus in his sinless life is able to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. And as truly God, Jesus is able to perform the action of forgiveness. Jesus has all authority to claim the prerogative of forgiveness because he is the son, the second person of the Trinity. Or as John states in his gospel, Jesus is the eternal word made flesh. This sets Jesus apart from any other religious leader, And it sets Christianity apart from any other religion. Uh, The well-known pastor John MacArthur used to do uh, live interviews and discussion panels uh, on the Larry King show in the US uh, for many years. And on one occasion, he was on a panel with a whole bunch of other um, people representing uh, religions, New Age, philosophies, all sorts of stuff. And he made made a clear statement, as he generally tends to do, he said essentially that there are, there are only two religions in this world. There's a religion of forgiveness in which salvation is through faith in the atoning death of the Saviour. And then there is the religion of works in which salvation is through man's feeble efforts. Now this last category covers every single religion in the world. And the first category is biblical Christianity. Salvation is only found through faith in Christ. Moses didn't save anyone. Buddha didn't save anyone. Muhammad didn't save anyone. Confucius didn't save anyone. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins. Only the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life and took it back up again to bring about the forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus is worthy of our affection and faith. Now the questioning of the scribes showed that they were not willing to accept Jesus for who he was. But interestingly, Jesus' response to them should have opened their eyes because Jesus revealed to them what was happening in their hearts. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Three times in this passage, it is mentioned that the scribes were simply pondering inwardly about what was happening. In verse 6, they were questioning in their hearts. Here in verse 8, they questioned within themselves. And then Jesus asked them, why do you question these things in your hearts? 
The deity of Christ is on display also here in his power of omniscience, his divine knowledge. It was not that Jesus simply perceived how they might respond to what he had said. You know, in marriage, you get good at understanding how the other person is going to respond to what you say. Uh, They don't even uh, need to say anything. You just know uh, you, you've, you've, you've said that thing time and time again and you, you know exactly how they're going to respond. But that's not what is going on here. Jesus didn't take an educated guess. He knew. Jesus shows knowledge of things unknowable to a mere mortal and he knew it immediately. And would that not have an effect on you if someone told you exactly what you were thinking? So Jesus poses a question to them, verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take your bed and walk? Now in a practical sense, it's far easier to pronounce someone's sins as being forgiven because there's no objective way to judge whether that's occurred. In a spiritual sense, It's far easier to perform a miraculous healing because even the pagan priests of Pharaoh's court were able to keep up with Moses for at least a little while, whereas forgiving sins requires a perfect sacrifice. But the reality is that true physical and true spiritual healing are impossible for man and can only be done by God. Psalm 103 verses 2 to 3 state... Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases. The power of God to pronounce forgiveness and perform healing is the prerogative of Jesus. And what happens next serves to provide proof. So point four, the proof of forgiveness. As we've seen in previous events of Mark's Gospel account, the miraculous power of Christ serves to authenticate his message and his identity. Verses 10 to 11. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. We can see clearly that the purpose behind Christ's action here is to prove that he does have the right to pronounce forgiveness of sins. Now he refers to himself with the title, the Son of Man. And it's a title that only Jesus uses for himself because it allows him the freedom to define for the people who he truly is. The prophet Ezekiel is referred to by God as a son of man. But in these instances, it simply means a human being. However, in Daniel's writings, he speaks in chapter 7 of a, a vision of the glorious son of man who descends from the clouds of heaven and is given a kingdom and power on earth. A man who is much more than a mere man. For Jesus to describe himself as the Son of Man means he recognises his own divine identity, but that he draws people to come to that conclusion based on the evidence. The evidence they witness 
without the stumbling block that other titles might set up for them, such as Messiah or Lord. And what evidence is there that Jesus is who he says he is? Verse 12, And the paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So which is easier? Forgiveness or healing? Well, for Jesus Christ, there is no issue. He has the power over infirmity and he has the power over iniquity. And with a simple command to heal, he offers proof to his profound power to forgive sin. And as with other healings, there is no recovery time here. The man's not offered a seat in the corner and a chance to get his breath before he gets up and walks out. No, the man heard Jesus' words. He stood up and immediately at once picked up the bed that he'd been lowered down on. In utter astonishment, the crowd that had earlier been so tightly packed that the man's companions couldn't find a way in, it now simply parts like the Red Sea to let him walk out before them. But while the crowd praises God for what they've just witnessed, let us not get confused into thinking that it was a profession of faith in Christ that the crowd was giving. In Matthew's parallel account, the, the, their amazement is tempered by these words in chapter 9, verse 8. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. This suggests that they still didn't believe what the miracle truly signified, that Jesus was God in the flesh. But of course, that simply sets up the challenge for Mark's original readers, and it sets up that challenge for us as we read the Scriptures today as well. Will we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as he reveals himself to be? Will we see what the miracle signifies, what the miracle points to, That Jesus is the only one who can deal with our greatest need, our need to be reconciled to holy God by the forgiveness of our sins. Will we trust Jesus to do that for us or will we persist with our own means and our own works? And what this passage also shows us, I think, is our distinct inability to save ourselves. And on this, I wish to conclude. Interestingly, while Jesus' healing of the leper at the end of Mark 1 provided an incredible picture of a divine exchange, this account of the paralytic provides a wonderful picture of divine enablement. The healing of the leper was an illustration of substitutionary atonement that a person's sins are dealt with when they trust in Christ and he pays the penalty on their behalf. Well, the healing of the paralytic also provides us with an illustration, this time of regeneration. The paralytic could not come to Jesus on his own and neither can any sinner without the work of God in their hearts. And to the crowds in Capernaum, only a few years later, Jesus declared in John 6:44, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." 
when Adam and Eve were first created, they were able not to sin and they were able to sin. They were, in a sense, morally neutral. They were innocent. They could decide to go either way. But after the fall, every human being is born with a sinful nature and is not able not to sin. That doesn't mean everyone is as bad as what they could be, but it means that we are all born paralysed in our ability to respond to God. It is imperative that we see the gravity of our situation. We are sinners under the just judgment of holy God and we cannot do anything about that in our own strength. But we can only understand this, we can only understand our predicament by the work of the Holy Spirit who acts through his word to graciously reverse that paralysis and mobilise our wills to respond to Christ in repentance and faith. So let us not lose sight of our greatest need. Corporately, as a church, our mission to proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sin found in Christ alone must be central to everything we do. As individuals, we must not become so focused on our material needs that we fail to grasp what is really at stake. In performing triage on our own lives, forgiveness of sins is the top priority and trusting in Christ is the only remedy. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you once again that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and you have revealed our situation to us in your word while we experience physical suffering in this world because of the fallenness of it, because of the sin that corrupts everything. We realise from this passage and from the lips of Jesus that our greatest need is to be reconciled to you. Father, burn that into our hearts and our minds and bring us to our knees that we might seek your mercy and your forgiveness in Christ alone. We thank you that you are gracious and that you are merciful and that Christ, when we respond to him, when we call to the Lord, all who do so will be saved. In his precious name we pray. Amen.